Um, it is good to give praise to God. And if each week the only person that were here were me, it would be a big help to me. Now, how? Well, it's, it's good for me to spend a couple hours in worship instead of one. How else? This gets me up earlier. And that's good. David and Stephen will tell you that's good. And so it's discipline for me that I'm grateful for. Um, it's also discipline for you. Uh, one of the reasons that we're doing this is that we're well aware that in a short time that building will be done. When that building is done, it's quite likely that we are going to, for a variety of reasons, need to have two services. So if we discipline ourselves to do this now, um, it will facilitate our future moving into the building and the things we need to do there. However, I'll tell you this. I have preached to half this number multiple times. Um, and we've had worship. So I hope that uh, those of you who play in the band, um, those of you who do the sound and do the overhead, Abram, uh, John, I hope that you'll rejoice in the service and that you will uh, understand uh, that God is pleased to dwell in the praises of his people. And that uh, even if I weren't here and this whole place were empty and you were up there singing, that God is pleased by your praise. Um, a word um, to you men, and that is uh, we are having these Saturday David's Mighty Men thing, and I don't know who of you were here or, or not, um, but I do encourage all you men to come to that. It is going to be extremely important for those who come, and I would hate for you to get it to the end of the year and realize that your slothfulness and love for sleep or for whatever you do Saturday morning had kept you from uh, joining in this. Um, uh, I'll leave it at that, but a word to the wise is sufficient. Uh, it will be foundational for your life if you come, and you will look back in gratitude for many years. I've had a lot of years in the pastorate, and I can tell you that the people who have met with me weekly in the morning have always been the people who have ended up being the leaders of the church. And if you think that's because they're my favorites, it's not. It's because that weekly discipline of coming and being instructed under the Word is a reflection of the work of the Lord in your heart, but also uh, is a very, very clear indication of you having what we're going to be talking about this morning, and that is a recognition of the centrality of the importance of the Word of God in your life. Now, um, in that connection, let's read our scripture which is found in uh, Galatians. For those of you keeping track, this is what number sermon on Galatians? Nobody knows. 60. Is that what you said? Yep, it's number 60. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're a mathematician. Nobody better to have guess other than maybe a statistician or maybe an actuary. Uh. <laughs> Okay, Galatians 6, verses 6 through 10. The one, this is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. The one who is taught the Word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. 
Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of, of the faith. Now, um, just, just a few comments about the text um, before I get more detailed. First of all, the construction in the Greek that begins this is the one who is taught is how it's translated up there. And uh, the Greek word behind this is the word that we get the English word uh, catechumen from, or somebody who's catechized. Uh, this is a word that we're not, we don't use today because basically we don't really catechize uh, biblical knowledge today the way we used to. Um, in fact, uh, back in the uh, 1800s when the Sunday school movement was growing, um, you can go back and read the arguments about Sunday school because anything new always has arguments in the church. And what you find is that the old timers in the church, and almost all fights in churches are between new timers and old timers, and the old timers in the church said no to Sunday school, and they were really hot about it. Do you have any idea why they didn't think Sunday school should be, I mean, you know, I'm getting a strong hint. Why do you think they said Sunday school shouldn't, shouldn't be held? Yeah, they said, look, if you start holding Sunday school, what's going to happen is you're not going to have people uh, teaching their children anymore. And that's imperative that we teach children. And the whole vision of Sunday school at the beginning was missional. <laughs> the whole thing about Sunday school was to get the poor kids. The kids that, whose parents were not fulfilling either because... The father had died, the mother had to work, and she, she just didn't have it in her, or because the father was uh, a despiser of God, or a despiser of his children. He just didn't give a rip. And so, in large part, I would say that Sunday school and vacation Bible school did, in fact, do what the people warned. It did remove from Christian parents their sense of obligation to train their children in, in biblical things. Um, and I'm as bad as the rest of them. Uh, you know, I have not, well, yeah, I mean, well, I said to my daughter, Michael, who is now married to Ben Crum a couple years ago, how horrible I feel that I have not catechized my children, particularly on the Lord's Day afternoon. And Michael, in her inimitable way, looked at me and laughed. And she said, oh, Daddy, you have to catechize this. And I said, no, I haven't. How have I? She said, everything you say to us is catechizing us. Well, you know, there's some truth to that, but there's also a lack of truth. Systematic training. Thinking through ahead of time what the curriculum will be. Now, I'm not trying to say that uh, all of us should sit down with our children and teach them a, a catechism. Uh, I think that's obvious that that's a good thing. Um, I think also it's obvious that our children should memorize not just haphazard verses here and there, but they should memorize Scripture. Um, the first duty of training is the duty of fathers and mothers to train their children. And that's a duty that takes precedence over the duty of the school teachers 
um, of nursery school, of daycare, of college, of seminary, of uh, Sunday school. Uh, it, it is the, the first duty. And you go to the Old Testament and you'll see this command that parents are supposed to constantly train their children. And it says, you know, when you go to bed and when you get up in the morning and when you're taking a walk and, you know, one of the best times to train for parents today is, is in the car on family vacations or long drives. I mean, the kids can't get away from you and if you don't train them, you know, they're going to go crazy and fight with each other, you know. And so, you know, nowadays cars go by and you see that, that omnipresent altar, you know, the, the, the screen you know, hanging right behind the, the, you know, where they're watching videos. And I'm, a, I'm not against videos in cars. I've, I've lost my temper with my children on trips. So if that can keep that from happening, I'm all for it. As a matter of fact, you'll find it interesting that my brother David says that might be one example where uh, images are necessary. <laughs> Which, anyhow. Now... If we start with children, natural children of parents, adopted children of parents, and we look at the obligation of parents to train their children, and then we look at the life of children, and we think, the Bible says, honor your father and mother. Okay? And so you take the children and their parents, and everything the parents do, they diaper them, they, they feed them, they clothe them, they clean them, they teach them, they teach them table manners. They teach them divinity, God. All right. And then you look at the relationship as the years go by. What you see is that the child becomes the parent and the parent becomes the child. So as we go into old age, those of us that have parents who are still living, we begin to teach them. Why? Because we should not withhold any good thing from those who have taught us. Now, you're saying, well, yeah, but it's talking about paying preachers. I say, it's much larger than that. It's the obligation those who have been raised have to those who have raised them. So all of you who are younger are going to get to the day where you are going to have the obligation to provide for your parents. Uh, you're going to provide for them financially. You're going to provide for them uh, emotionally. You're going to love them. That's the way you honor your parents in the old age. Uh, you are going to provide for them by teaching them. Um, father to son to son is an old queen song. <laughs> father to son to son. It's amazing that, uh, you know, well, anyhow, forget queen. Um, now, how would you teach your older parents? Well, the way you'd teach them is that when they have to move into your brother's home, you might have an obligation to exhort them to not be uh, complaining about the various things that they suffer by having to lose their independence. Now, think about that. It's natural, isn't it? It's natural that you would give all good things to your parents, right? And that as they get older, they get more dependent on you and they become sort of your children. And some ch parents are reduced basically to the state of a baby before they die, where they have to be diapered, they have to be fed by hand, they become a baby. And this is the reality of life. And I've seen it many times as a pastor. I've seen it also with my own father-in-law. Now, 
What does this have to do with the text? Well, you look at the beginning and it says the one who is taught is to share all good things with the one who teaches them. Now, I left the little thing out of there. I left out the word, the one who was taught the word. But if you look at the principle, then what you realize is that the pastor is what? The pastor is a father to you. That's how you should think of your pastors. You should think of your pastors as being uh, uh, nursing mothers to you. Uh, you should be that vulnerable to the milk. You know, you're not keeping track of its nutrients, what it has in it. You're just drinking. Now, of course, um, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't exercise discernment in who you put yourself under as a pastor. You're not ignorant like a tiny little infant who simply takes whatever he's given. You're very different. But you do need to think more and more of pastors as fathers of the household of faith. And if you do that, then you'll begin to have a, a different attitude towards those who preach to you. And you'll realize that it is absolutely important who you give that honor and that privilege to. One of the things that uh, many students of Scripture uh, say about this text is that this does not mean that you have an obligation to share all good things with those who are unfaithful in the ministry of the Word. And that, of course, presupposes you're making judgments about who's faithful and unfaithful. Uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin on this text, both of them make the comment that uh, this doesn't mean that you support Rome. Now, you look at them in the context and you look at what's going on in many churches today and you think, okay, well, if, if they taught their people that this didn't mean that you supported Rome, because at the time, uh, a lot of the priests couldn't even do anything except recite the Mass. They, they couldn't read. They, they could make no help to their people other than just going through rote, you know, ritual day after day after day. Um, and he says, you know, that doesn't mean that you pay them. Now, what's the application today? Well, the application today is that there are many, many pastors who sh you should not share all good things with. Now, who? Well, I think it's pretty obvious that um, one of the people you should share, not share all good things with are the people... Uh, uh, <laughs> um, now remember, Martin Luther and John Calvin both said there's a certain category and they named them. And actually, <coughs> I think Calvin, but it might have been Luther, referred to them as the pointy heads. Um, you know, because of the apparatus that they wore on their heads as a part of their office. You know, all this rigmarole. Now, would you be surprised if I made that application specifically and, 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 and said, one of the things I think it makes very clear is that you should not, uh, the, you should not give money to the big hair women and their husbands. Now, who are the big hair women and their husbands? Well, uh, these are the people that sit in the gold-plated uh, thrones on Trinity Broadcasting Network, you know, um, what do they do? Well, basically, they fool old women. That's what they do. Amen. Yes, but old women particularly. And Scripture does say about women that they are more susceptible because it says these are the kinds that worm their way into the homes of weak women. And it's speaking specifically about the vulnerability of women. I think that's one of the applications of the text that we're not to oppress widows. 
you know, that there is a vulnerability about having had your husband die or not having anybody to protect you doctrinally. And uh, if you look at the demographics of Trinity Broadcasting Network, um, it's, it's just tragic to see the amount of money that people give to these guys. Why? Because they're selling them something. What are they selling them? They're selling them health, wealth. They're selling them uh, Jesus as, as, as a rabbit's foot, you know? Um, and so we shouldn't give money to them, and we should discourage other people. You know, if my mother had gotten caught up in that, which she hasn't, you know, I would warn her against that. When my mother had her husband die, um, my father, um, for a period of years she was very vulnerable uh, because of her emotional pain. And there were certain things that I needed to caution her about out of that. So the negative application is that we should not give ourselves uh, to applying this text, the one who has taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches them, simply to anybody who has the name and claims for themselves being a teacher of the word, should we? We should make discrimination, discernment, make judgment about those who have that responsibility. Now, um, the one who is taught is a catechumen, somebody who is, is instructed um, there to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Um, now, let's focus for a second on the one, uh, the one who teaches, in this case, uh, would be obviously professors and teachers and uh, counselors. And I want to apply this to you guys. This is the beginning of an academic year. And I want to ask you all, how much money are you going to give to your professors this year? What are you going to pay tuition this year? So how much is your tuition that's being covered by somebody else? Well, take a guess. Okay, 20000 Uh What's your tuition? Huh? Your tuition or, or your whole cost, room and board and tuition? Your tuition's thirty thousand. Anybody else want to talk about what your tuition is? Eight thousand. Now, let me ask you: How much did you give to your church this past year? How much? You have any idea about how much? Oh, oh, I'm not supposed to ask that, am I? I mean. It's okay. Jesus looked at how much people put in the offering and made comparisons based on how much went in. Does anybody want to tell me what they gave last year? Anybody in here other than the pastors? Anybody? Just tell me. What do you think you gave to your church last year? Okay. Abram gave 2500 Okay. What's your tuition? Now, why are you giving 8000 to your professors but 2500 to your pastors? Go ahead. There's a good reason. This is, don't worry. I'm not taking a cheap shot by this. <laughs> yeah, and that's typical. It's typical that the reason that we have so much more going to tuition is that we have people helping us with tuition. Um, and we've all had that. I, I think probably there's nobody in here that hasn't had somebody, some institution, parents, somebody helping you with tuition. Uh, but there are other reasons. What are the other reasons? Yeah, Caesar does demand it. I mean, you don't have a choice, right? 
So is this just because I don't demand it and Caesar does? No, not really. I mean, that's part of it. What else is it? What, what are we dealing with here? It's hard. But you don't really have a choice about room and board, do you? You pay the going rate for your apartment. You pay the going rate for your milk and eggs, right? You pay the going rate for your education. Uh, Caesar demands it. Um, and also, there is a going rate for pastors, isn't there? Why do you think Abram gave 2500 last year? My guess is that it's something analogous to a tithe. And how he came up with that, I have no idea, because I know his income last year wasn't 25000 <laughs> So I don't know how he came up with that, but somehow Abram felt proportionally that that was a faithful amount. Now, I know students have hard times. And when I was in seminary, seminary for me probably cost about 25000 a year. I had a wife, children, you know. Um, and my father said to me, you know, Tim, there may be a couple of years in your life where you're so poor that you really ought not to tithe. And, you know, my father was always right. I'm always wrong. And I'm saying that, not my dad. He'd never say that. But on that, he was wrong. And one of the joys in my life as a student was tithing. Um, I... I, I would never discourage you from tithing. I would never discourage you from giving proportionally to the Lord. As you grow older, you'll be able to give more than 10%, but I think 10% is, is, has a basis in Scripture and is a good discipline and a joy. And disciplines always become joy when they're acts of love to the Lord. Now, think, though, about the relative value that you do place on your, your public education and your church or the education for this world and the education for your soul. Think about that for a second. Think about the value monetarily. Uh, why is that? Is it all clean? No, it's not all clean, actually. Um, some of you do actually value your education for this life more than you value the preaching of God's Word and the teaching. There's no question. Um, because Satan constantly is at work in our heart trying to get us to look down on anything that will help our soul. And Satan is consciously working on you all the time trying to get you to value your secular education and to despise the preaching of, of the Word. In my heart, in your heart, he's trying to keep me from preparing properly, not getting up in time so that I'm awake when I begin preaching at the second service. That's me. And so uh, one of the ways that he, that he works is he, he, he encourages you to not give to your pastors, but to give to Caesar, to give to your professors. But let me ask you a question. Um, how much value are your professors to you? I mean, really? The best of them are of... Usually, you sometimes can have professors who train you in godliness. It's a rare gift, but it comes occasionally. But usually, your professors are worth something only in this life. They will help you get a job. <laughs> you know, could they really get us to do what we do at the university unless there was a job at the end? Some of us, maybe Jiho, uh, although he is an exotic one. Um, Music is good, but uh, 
it is good to make comparisons sometimes and to look at the overwhelming amount of time and money we put into purely secular pursuits and how parsimonious and stingy we are with our soul. Um, I had to encourage you to come Saturday mornings. It's laughable. You give a couple of hours on Sunday and you're done. And then they put you, uh, what, an average of eight hours a week for any class when you take in both the, the class time and the prep. Maybe eight hours per class. I don't know, something six to ten, twelve. Some, you know, Greek. When I took Greek at UW-Madison, I would say that the Greek was... Uh, um, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 3, 7, 21. Uh, 26 hours a week for me. Now, it was the most intense Greek class any of us have ever had. I, I guarantee you that. Mrs. Fowler at UW-Madison was one intense woman. Nevertheless, that was one class. I was married. I, I had church responsibilities, and I had a full class load. And so you think about that, and you think, okay, there's an awful lot of investment in secular education. And I think... Those of you who are in training need to compare that to what uh, your investment is in the one who teaches the Word. Uh, now, how do you give all good things to the one who teaches the Word? Well, obviously, we're not just talking about money, are we? What are all good things? It's not just money, is it? What else is it that you can give the one who teaches the Word to you? You can give labor. Uh, David Abusara knows how to trim trees, and he gave me a special gift. He came over, and he climbed up in my backyard, and he brought under control this tree that had been taking over our lives. And when you go in our backyard now, you'll see a tree that's beautifully, beautifully pruned. It looks like bonsai, you know? It's just gorgeous, and it, it's an umbrella, and it just gives beauty to our backyard. Uh, last night, I needed somebody to get up in my attic and to help me install an exhaust fan and bathroom. And I'm somewhat large, you know, and somewhat feeble in my 52s in a way I wasn't when I was younger. And, and Lucas was there. I, I'm not quite sure why, but he was. And, uh, and I said, well, either Lucas or Joseph are going to have to help me. And immediately, Lucas was, I'm happy to help. Why? Not because of the reason he was there. Uh, it wasn't. Because Lucas is always willing to help those who feed him the word. And, you know, you guys, I could come to any one of you and ask you to do something. You'd do it at the drop of a hand because you're all grateful to your pastors. I see this all the time. And I'm thankful for that. So, yeah, by helping us with physical work, how else? What's the most important thing to a pastor? The most important thing to a pastor is what? Is it his money? If it is, you shouldn't be in that church. I have a pastor friend who was pastor of a Presbyterian church in the South. He earned $160,000 a year in salary. You know, How much do you think that the pastor, Tim LaHaye, has made from his books? Well, my family publishes his books. You know, Mary Lee's father. That's his company, right? Do you know that that capitalization of that project called Left Behind is now over a billion dollars? Okay, how much do you think Tim LaHaye makes? How much do you think Jerry Jenkins makes? Now, Jerry Jenkins is, is a family friend, and let me tell you, they profited from the word. Now, you say, oh, it's novels. I say, no, it's the word. 
It's theology about the end times. And everybody feels good reading it because it'll teach you about how to prepare for the end of the world. Now, how much, what do you think it is that causes me uh, the greatest joy and is the biggest payoff for me as a pastor? It's not David coming and, and trimming my tree. What, what is it? Yes, yeah, that's what I live for. I live for seeing those who have sat under our preaching and teaching themselves uh, making disciples who will follow them. That's what we live for. We live for mothers as we watch them. They're training their children in godliness. And you see it. Let me tell you, you see it. And you love those women. We live for daughters who are giving themselves to missions and to instructing other women. Uh, we live for sons who are uh, teaching Sunday school classes and training their children and disciplining them. Um, in other words, we live for people who obey what they've been taught. That's the first obligation that you should fulfill to those who teach you the word, is you should learn the word and you should obey the word. We couldn't give a rip about getting paid if there's no obedience. I once had a... Uh, a man come into my office and I was in a new church and it was a mainline Presbyterian church and it was where all the rich and proud people in town went. That was what the Presbyterian church was known for in that town. You know, the Lutherans, they were rich and proud too, but not as bad as the Presbyterians and the Catholics were humble and the Methodists were humble and the Baptists were humble and the Free Methodists were humble. But the Presbyterians, we were proud. And I began to preach with authority from Scripture. And um, you can imagine that the people uh, did not want me to do that, and they got angry. And so one day a man came in, and he sat down in a chair. And I had this happen multiple times, both people coming to me and people who were in elders' meetings saying this to me. And what they'd say to me is, Tim, if you keep preaching like this, and it wasn't because I was picking my nose while I was in the pulpit, you know, it wasn't because I didn't wear a tie. Back then, I always was straight. You know, I always had a starch white shirt and a long tie on, not a short one. Um, and uh, he sat in my office and he said, Tim, if you keep preaching like this, how much longer do you think we're going to pay you? Now, don't think that that's unusual. It's not. It's all the time in the ministry, those who are biblical in their ministry. Well, I had just gone to an auction of the public school system. And uh, one of the things I'm a real sap for, a real sucker for, is old vacuum cleaners. And I love vacuum cleaners, old ones, because they're good. The new ones break all the time. So I, I had bought uh, three vacuum cleaners off the old school system. And one of them was nice and good and heavy. And I had brought it into my office, which was very small, but I had my books, I had my vacuum cleaner. And uh, until I got to church, I earned my living cleaning. I love to clean. Um, and so he was sitting there, how long, much longer? And I said to him, I said, Mr. What's, Mr. Doe, I said, look at the corner over there. And he looked and I said, you see what's in the corner? And he said, what, the vacuum cleaner? I said, yeah, the vacuum cleaner. I said, you know, until a couple of months ago, I was using that vacuum cleaner to support my family. You know, not that vacuum cleaner. And I said, I'm kind of missing the work. And I said, if, if, uh, if you don't pay me, 
I, I would love to start cleaning again. And I said, but uh, if I start cleaning again to support my family, I will still preach to you. You know, you understand? If you don't pay me, I'll still preach. And that's what happened with Paul and the Corinthians. He knew if he took money from the Corinthians that it would corrupt his relationship with them and undercut the word of God. So he didn't take any money from them. He took money from the Philippians, which supported him while he cared for the Corinthians. Okay? And, and so here's the application. The application is the pastor of a church is a father to you. You should honor him by... Not muzzling the ox is, is, is what Paul quotes in another context by allowing him to, to earn and to profit from his work. Uh, you should honor him by having that profit be spiritual by obedience and by you growing, but also financial by him being able to live off his work so he doesn't have to spend his time also earning money and then trying to preach and trying to study, to pray, to counsel. Uh, you should free him up. You should be very careful to do this when you're young and students so that the discipline continues when you come into your years of earning money. And now one final application to you guys. And then I'll stop. And I'm five minutes, four minutes over. The final application is um, that when you leave Bloomington, if the pastors of your church in Bloomington have been absolutely foundational to your spiritual life, you should continue to support this church as you move into another church. Now, why would I say that? Well, because everybody does it with Campus Crusade and InterVarsity. In other words, those to whom you come to a special growth then, how do you think Paul was supported while he was in Corinth? He was supported by the people in Philippi still paying him, Macedonia still paying him when he was in Corinth because they were freeing him up to do the ministry in another place where he couldn't really depend on the support for other reasons. And so I have never had any hesitation in telling people who are a part of um, this church who have gone on, I did this this last week, uh, to continue to support this church because everybody at this church leaves when they start earning money. And so one of the principles is when you start earning money, Come back and help us in a way you weren't able to when you were students. All right, I'll stop. Let's pray.